Philippians chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out for not only your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of on the, those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I may not run that that I have not run in vain or labored in vain yes and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state for all seek their own not the things which are of Christ Jesus But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and and the one who ministered to my need since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, 
These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many are as are mature, have this mind, and if anything, and, and, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us, let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I told you, you often, told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, and who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Let's pray together. Lord, we yield our hearts to you, Lord. We are open for you to speak to us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us on the cross. Thank you for raising yourself from the dead. Thank you for all that you've done in, in providing everything that we need for life and godliness, Lord. We yield, Lord, to you now. We want your supernatural work of your spirit to occur in us. Lord, we want to hear what you have to say to us, not merely for our, supremely for our benefit, Lord, but for um, the, the very important um, lifelong goal of blessing your heart with obedience and worship to you in bearing fruit for you. So we yield our hearts to you. We ask that you set this time aside for your holy use and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I love the book of Philippians. It's a very powerful book uh, and I think one of the reasons why is because of the context from which it was written. Um, it's known as one of the four prison epistles, along with Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. And so the Apostle Paul wrote this, it's believed, in his first imprisonment in Rome. So he's in Rome in a prison cell writing this letter to these dear Philippians that he loved so much. The theme of the book is joy, which is so ironic because if you think about the context of writing in a prison, and those prisons weren't like today's prisons, they were much more difficult to survive. If people didn't bring you food, didn't bring you things that you needed, you wouldn't get them. It's not like they supplied them for you. So you'd have to depend on loved ones and friends and people that would come identify themselves with you and come and bring you those things on a regular basis. Through a lot of these epistles, the Apostle Paul talks about how, what he needed 
or what he wanted them to bring, his cloak, his, the parchments he wrote to Timothy in his, in his second imprisonment there, because this isn't the only time he's going to be imprisoned towards the end of his life, a few years from this time, he's going to be in his final imprisonment where he's going to be, as history records, uh, beheaded for his faith and um, give his life completely for the Lord. So the fact that the theme of this book is joy is very ironic because if you and you or I were, were in prison um, and we were writing a book, the theme would probably not be joy. I, I don't know about you, but for me, it would be the theme of the book would be whining. <laughs> it would be complaining, it would be, um, you know, misery. You know, if you want to learn about misery, read this letter that I'm writing because I'm going to be enveloped with uh, self-pity and depression and all these things, which, you know, in many ways on a human level is very natural, but the difference is we have the joy of the Lord, and, and the joy of the Lord is, is, is the difference w between everything. The joy of the Lord is our strength. When I'm happy, it's circumstance-based. You know, if my wife comes home and she, she has a, a chocolate cream pie, I'm, all, I'm happy. I'm, I'm a, a happy camper. Uh, but if she brings home Brussels sprouts, not so much. Um, but so happiness is circumstance-based, but joy is based on our relationship with Christ. And the beautiful thing is that the fact that nothing can get in the way of our relationship with Christ. Our, our positional standing with Christ is secure, and, and, our, and, and so he's not weighing out our sin and all the time thinking, you know, am I going to have anything to do with them? Am I going to love them? Am I going to bless them? All these things. Uh, our positional standing with God causes that um, relationship to be constant. And that's part of what we go through in this life of growing in the grace of God is understanding that he loves us not because of our performance or our lack of performance. He loves us because he is love. That's who he is. He can't help himself. And, and so the, this whole joy theme is, has been a constant through Paul's life anytime he's been incarcerated. You may remember when, when Paul and Silas were, were you know, in, that, in Philippi, the same place that he's writing to. They're in Philippi there, and they're worshiping the Lord. And then the, God causes an earthquake to open up the cells, and the Philippian jailer receives Christ, and his family receives Christ, and all of that. This isn't the first time he's experienced joy in writing this theme, but it's, it's important for us to understand that because God caused him to write this in prison, it helps us understand that whatever we're going through, we're likely not going through something worse than being imprisoned in Rome at this time for our faith unjustly. And so it can help us understand if, if Paul could have joy in this, in that context, then I can have joy in my situation. And perhaps you're in a situation where you're battling you know, to be focused on the Lord because of things going on in your life and you don't really sense the joy of the Lord and God wants to encourage you this morning. So let's begin in verse 1. He says, therefore, if, if in, this is in chapter 2, by the way, in verse 1, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now he starts with therefore, and I want to read the previous couple verses in the last chapter, in chapter 1, that will help us understand why he's saying therefore. It says in verse 29 of chapter 1 and verse 30, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So then he comes into this chapter and says, therefore, if there's any consolation, 
any comfort and all these things. And the word if in, the, in verse 1 here of chapter 2, it can be translated since. So he's, he's, it's like since this is the case, if, since there's consolation in Christ, since there's comfort of love, since there's fellowship of the Spirit and all these things. So he's saying because of that, fulfill my joy. There's our first time where joy is mentioned there in verse 2. Do you see that? He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Now, why would Paul have joy for them being like-minded? It's because God's given him a portion of, of his heart and his mind towards how the body of Christ should be when we're engaging one another. We need to be in unity. We need to be in 100% unity. I don't know if you have kids, but if you ever had kids and they're fighting, it's a real bummer <laughs> as a parent. They're fighting, and I mean, I, I was the source of so many fights growing up. I mean, I premeditated crime left and right in my house, you know, and drive my sisters crazy. I'm amazed that they will still have anything to do with me, but um, they know that I've been forgiven, and, you know, they, they're very gracious. But, um, you know, you want your kids to get along, and when they don't get along, they don't think the same way. They're always fighting. It's, it's, they're saying things that hurt each other. They're saying things that affect one another. As believers, when we're not like-minded, we don't have the same love towards each other, we're showing favoritism, or we're ignoring other people, pretending that they don't exist because they may rub us the wrong way or whatever. Um, when we're not unified like that, it, it, it hurts the Lord's heart. So he's given Paul a portion of his heart, and that's why the, the, the Apostle Paul is saying you need to be like-minded in all these things. Since there's consolation with this persecution, since you get to be like me in the sense of sharing in his sufferings that he mentioned in the previous chapter, because of that, there's comfort. There's, there's, you guys need each other. You guys need to help each other. You need to love each other equally. And that's the beautiful thing about a church that's led by the Spirit, that's submitted to him and growing, is because they're for one another. You know, cancer cells destroy the body from within, and they turn on each other. That's kind of the same thing. You, you have in a body of believers, you have people that can be like a cancer in the sense of doing damage, or you can have healthy, a healthy body with healthy cells that are building each other up and feeding one another, as Ephesians 4 speaks of, that we're actually using our spiritual gifts and our love and our concern and our prayers to build one another up. And, and it's a beautiful thing when that just happens organically by the Holy Spirit. When you study cults, you understand that cults... They don't have unity. They like to say that they have unity, but it's really conformity. And the difference between conformity and unity is conformity is forced um, agreement, and unity is something that, it's, or in, the, in the church realm, in the, in the body of Christ, is something that the Holy Spirit brings forth. So he says, do these things, be in uh, you know, unity with one another. And then he continues in verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind... Let each esteem others better than himself. That's, that can hit home pretty good. I mean, I can on some days think that somebody is, is as good as me. You know, on a good day, if, they're, if their performance is doing pretty well, I might think they're as good as me, but I'm not going to think they're better than me, most likely, in my flesh, in many contexts. But it's the case that he wants us to esteem other, others better than ourselves. And, and, and really, this deals with pride. And pride was the first sin. Lucifer had pride in his heart. It was the first sin. That's why he got ejected, kicked out of heaven along with a third of the angels because of pride. What is pride? Pride is seeing myself above. That's the simplest definition for pride. And so he says here, let nothing, not some things, not most things, he says nothing 
absolutely nothing be done through selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is, is wanting to accomplish things for yourself to the neglect of what God's leading you to do, and many times to the, to the detriment of somebody else. And that's what the corporate ladder is all about. You step on people on the way up on the corporate ladder many times to be able to reach those levels of, of accomplishment. So he says the key to that is if you're considering somebody better than you, the last thing you're going to do is put yourself ahead of them. You're going to prefer them. And it, it's true in a marriage. It's true in a family. It's true in any relationship. If people are out trying to outserve each other and prefer one another and to honor each other, there's really very low possibility for conflict. Verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So he says you're supposed to look out for your own interests. Some people don't even want to look out for their own interests. <laughs> you know, they're just about just checking out, you know, and not being good stewards and all this. And he says, no, you should take care of your own interests, um, but, but also don't just do that. Be, be involved in other people's lives. And what it requires is for you to be proactive, how are you looking out for the interests of others? It requires you to be proactive. Well, how are you proactive? Well, you're, you're actually aggressively trying to figure out what would bless people. Listening. That's a really big key to, to blessing others is being a good listener. Because people will communicate their needs to you when they don't, real, you know, not realizing that you're listening for how you can meet those needs. You're, they're talking to you and they're talking about their struggles and how, you know, they, they're in need of this or, or whatever. And you're, you know, you're thinking, you know, in your mind, how can I help them? What practical way can I show my love for them? You know, Tim models this, Heidi models this. And so it's just, just manifests in practical helps and, and, and blessings and so forth. But it's, it's required for us to listen and to anticipate needs, to be thinking ahead. It's really hard to bless people when you're not thinking ahead in terms of what they may need. And be people with hospitality do this so great because you come into their house, they've thought about everything. You know, they've thought about what's gonna, your favorite meal if they know it, you know, when you, when you would like to eat, what would you like to drink, they've already thought ahead. So when, how much does that bless us when we go in someone's home? They've thought it all through, they, they, they've taken the time to ask or find out what would bless you the most and they've prepared all this great thing, this great situation for you to be so blessed. I mean, we are, there's nothing like it. But that's how the church should function. We should be listening to other people's needs, trying to find a way to meet their needs and, and the people with the greatest skill related to this are meeting needs anonymously. People have no idea where that bag of groceries came from. They have no idea where that gift card came from. They have no idea, you know, it's just like Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Be very covert in your giving, in, your, in your, um, the way that you bless. Verse five, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So he's gonna provide the ultimate example of looking out for the interests of others. The best example the Apostle Paul by the Spirit could think of is the incarnation. And that's what he's going to look at. Verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. This is one of the clearest descriptions of the incarnation in the whole Bible. Is, and think about the condescension that Jesus would have to engage in to be able to come to this earth. 
you know, he talked about in John 17 in that great high priestly prayer, he talked about the glory that I had with you talking to the Father before the world began. See, we're, we're not amazed like we should be of the incarnation because we don't know where he came from. We've never seen it. We've never experienced it. The Apostle Paul said he was allowed to hear what was going on in the beautiful sounds in heaven. He said it wouldn't even be lawful for me to try to reproduce that for you. You know, so he came from that. And so he just came to this earth. Just that alone is the most humiliating or humbling thing that, that God could ever think about doing um, in what he's shown in, in how he's humbled himself. The word form there in verse 6 and verse 7, it actually means essence. It's the word morphe. We get our, when we talk about metamorphosis, that's a changing of someone's form. This, this word form is talking about essence. So he says in verse 6, who being in the essence of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, it wasn't inappropriate for him to be considered equal with God because he was God. Um, verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form, that's our word essence again, or nature, of a bondservant and the coming in the likeness of men. A bondservant is a willing slave, someone that's in Hebrew culture, paid off a debt after seven years and loved his master so much that he said, I want to be this person's servant for the rest of my life, and they'd make it permanent. It was, it was a volitional decision by that slave. And that's what Paul refers to himself all through his writings as a bondservant of Christ, a willing slave. So he says, Jesus came in the form of a bondservant, a willing slave. He was, wasn't against his will. He came voluntarily and came um, and, and accomplished this great incarnation culminating in the death on the cross. And then in verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I just can't imagine what it would be like to, to go from where he came and humble himself and live an obedient life, didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many and be able to give his life over uh, into hands of sinful man to, to punish uh, for them to punish him for his so-called crimes that they made up, but he did it willingly because he said in John chapter 2, he said, no one takes my life. If I lay it down, I can take it up again. And, and so he gave his life. If from man's perspective, he was murdered. The scriptures declare that clearly, but from God's perspective, he wasn't murdered. He, was, he offered his body willingly for, for us. So he humbled himself. And that's the whole same mind that he's talking about here um, in verse 5, let this mind be in you. What is that mind of being humble and being willing to care for people and look out for their interests and to sacrifice and to consider them better than you? All of that mind is, is, is a mind that looks like Christ and how he came and, and died for us. Now notice the result of Christ's obedience of the cross in verse 9. He says, therefore God also has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is, this is talking about what's appropriate. Every tongue should confess Every knee should bow, and everyone's going to bow before the Lord. The word confess means to verbally agree. That's what the word confess means. It means to say the same thing as. 
So to say the same thing as what, the, what truth is in that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what's interesting that this was actually, this has been actually prophesied and Paul didn't just come up with this or the, you know, it wasn't the first time this thought was ever put, out, put forth in Scripture. You can write next to the, to the verses 10 and 11 in your margin in your Bible if you think it's okay to write in your Bible. Um, which I think it is. Um, you write Isaiah 45, 22, and 23. And I'll read it to you. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. So this is not a new this God's talking about in that passage, the good news and, and, and the word has been gone out of my mouth and righteousness and all these things. He's saying, I am God, there is no other, proclaiming who he is. And so the Apostle Paul, no doubt, thought of this verse, being well-versed in the scriptures, thinking that this is exactly what he was talking about. And so he writes this down in terms of how every knee is going to submit to God, every, in terms of bowing down, and every tongue is going to confess or say the same thing as or verbally agree with the truth of who Jesus really is, that Jesus is Lord, and that's going to bring glory to God the Father. So a beautiful passage, and that's, I mean, you just think about the future and the, the great white throne judgment that believers won't be at in terms of being judged, but unbelievers will be there. They'll receive a new body. They'll be resurrected to be able to endure that judgment, and every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. doesn't matter who they are, how wicked they've been, how, how religious they've been, but not knowing Christ, all the people that blaspheme the Lord all day, every day, those people are going to be bowing before the Lord and confessing that he is Lord. And it's much better, infinitely better to confess Jesus is Lord now as your savior, instead of saying Jesus is Lord and confessing that before him as judge. That's the last thing that we would want to be a part of. I'm so thankful that we're not. Now, Paul's going to talk about own, the ownership of sanctification in our own lives in verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he says, therefore, so in light of the fact that every knee is going to bow, including ours, and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus is Lord. We're going to be in the, what's called the, the judgment seat of Christ. Sometimes it's referred to as the Bema seat. And the Bema seat was in, was in Greece where they would have these competitions similar to the Olympics. And they would compete and they would go to this Bema seat to receive their rewards. But also it was a place where judgments would be meted out and administered and so forth. And, and matters and issues were decided. And, and so the, the, the reader would instantly know what Paul was talking about. It was a place of, of judgment and also rewards there. We're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to give an account for our lives as well. So that's why he says, therefore, my beloved, if you've always obeyed, he says, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not working for our salvation with fear and trembling. We can't work for salvation, can't earn salvation. It's talking about, because salvation means, it, it doesn't just mean 
your, when you receive forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're regenerated. We like to use that word regenerated. Um, it's, salvation is also the process of being made more like Christ and eventually culminating in us getting our new bodies. So we're, we're, we were saved when we, on the day of salvation. We are being saved in the sense of we are presently being brought through this life and being made more like Christ. And we also will be saved someday when we get our new bodies and we're going to have the fulf ultimate fulfillment of all of that and, and the culmination of it occur. So when he's saying work out your own salvation, first of all, the word work out is, a, is in the continuous tense there. So it's, he's literally saying continuously work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why does he say fear and trembling? I'm not supposed to be afraid of the Lord in the sense of, you know, I don't have anything to worry about with fear and judgment and fear of judgment or anything like that as a believer, but I should have fear and trembling and, and really sobriety and, and a healthy reverence for the fact that I'm going to stand before Jesus and give an account for my life. And it's not going to be only, you know, all good news. There's going to be some, I mean, Paul talks about it when he's talking about the, the, the great white, or not the great white throne judgment, but the, the Bema seat judgment as something that some will, will escape as by fire meaning that it's going to be a heavy thing. We're going to be grieved by the things that we didn't do for the Lord that he shows us. And, you know, it's not going to be a condemning thing at all, but it's going to grieve us and hurt us that we didn't do the things that, the things that we didn't do or, or how um, we didn't do them in the way that we should have done them, however that works out. And so he's saying, recognize that you have to work these things out in the sense of taking ownership of your growth, taking ownership of how you're progressing, you ultimately are responsible. I'm ultimately responsible for how we grow and what things that we are, are submitting to related to the Lord convicting us of sin and repenting and, and, and growing into maturity more and more and more. We don't get to decide how mature we're going to be. You know what? I kind of like that level of maturity that I'm at. I'm good. <laughs> I'm going to stay there. I'm, I'm happy. No, we don't, get that, we don't get that luxury. It's not even a luxury because being more and more holy is a better life. It's, it, holiness is its own reward. So as I'm growing in my walk with the Lord, I'm living a better and better life because holiness spares me from so many things that aren't good. And so he knows that. And so we have to take ownership of that. And he says, you know, Paul's saying, you know, you don't have to do it only when I'm gone. I mean, you do it when I'm gone as well, but just keep doing it. Continuously work this out and, and, and submit to the things that the Lord is wanting to do in your life because you're going to stand before Jesus. And it should produce a sobriety in your heart and a healthy reverence and awe that that's going to happen. And then he connects that to verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He's making the connection between standing before the Lord and, and being fruitful and being obedient to him and growing and, and having, working out sanctification in your, in your life. He's saying, God's at work in you. He's the one that is working in you to do these things. So you need to make the connection between he's the one that's working in you to do these things, but he's also the one that you're going to be standing before and giving an account of your life. And it's important for you to understand that it's he, he wants to help you do this. He wants to help you grow. It's, it's him that's the responsible for bearing fruit in your life. You know, Jesus said in John 15 that, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you cannot bear fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we have to rely upon him to bear fruit through our lives. He works in us both to have a will or a desire for it and to do and to perform his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without 
complaining and disputing. Now, why does that have to be in there? It's a bummer. Actually, I'm complaining and disputing about the verse, so I better not do that. But, um, you know, the, really the idea behind this is really in the context of not necessarily alone doing it in, around other people and them seeing us grumble and complain all the time, which is, we shouldn't be doing that either, but it's talking about having this attitude towards God. And, and, and you know, complaining, I did a word study on this, and it's talking about, like, the kind of grumbling you do when you're kind of grumbling under your breath, you know, like that, but, to, but towards God, and, and it's, the, it's more of like a rejection of his plan or his sovereignty or what he's allowing you to go through. It's like a grumbling in that sense, and you're responding to that. And then disputing is more of an intellectual questioning or, or trying to use reason and so forth to criticize God and his decisions in your life and all of that. And he says, do some things without, no, it doesn't say, do all things without complaining and and disputing. So one is more of an emotional grumbling under my breath. The other is more of an intellectual making a case in my mind against God's decisions. And both of those are not good. Now, we should be open with our feelings, of course. I mean, God doesn't want us to pretend like we're not. He knows what we're feeling anyway. So, but there's a difference between having that happen and realizing it, reining it in, and helping, having God help us and letting that go and just let that be an ongoing thing that's, that's happening in my life. There's a difference between those two things. Verse 15. So you are not supposed to uh, complain or dispute that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So he wants, So grumbling and complaining to God actually causes us to have real blame and, and to not be harmless. To be, you know, it affects not only us, but other people around us. And, he, and it's going to affect our witness. That, you know, many times a bad witness is a result of somebody having an unchecked heart with the Lord and, and having these things grow in terms of my bad attitude and my bad way, you know, wrong way of looking at things. And over time it spills over to how I'm uh, acting among other people. And before long, people can't tell the difference between me and, you know, and a believer. You know, they, they, don't, they don't, or someone in the world, I look just like someone that's, that's not saved and so forth. And he's saying that's not what God's called you to, to be. Because he says we're called to be lights, children of God without fault in the midst. In the midst, that's the key three words there, in the midst. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. So when we're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, which it's been that way f from the beginning, you know, ever since Adam and Eve fell, it's been a perverse and crooked generation. He says, for us, we're called to, to shine as lights in the world. But if we look like everybody else, if we've not stopped the process of complaining and disputing and fighting what God's doing, you know, it's really easy to understand God's heart for helping people when we have gone through some things ourselves. And that's one of the reasons why he has us go through what we go through in this life, so that we can comfort others with the comfort with which we've been comforted. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that. And so if we are fighting against God and upset, then that's going to carry over into how we're a witness or not for him. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ 
that I may have not run in vain or labored in vain. So he's saying that the Philippians needed to hold fast to the word of life and, and hold fast to obedience to God's word because if they're not going to do that, then they're going to not be salt and light anymore. And Paul's saying, I labored so much for you to grow, for you to be salt and light in this world. And I don't want all that work that I did to be in vain because you didn't finish your race the way that God wants you to finish your race. Verse 17, yes, and if I am, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So a drink offering was wine that they would pour in front of or on an offering, an existing offering. And the steam that would come up from that was an offering to God. And so he's saying that the Philippians, their sacrifice and service of their faith is the offering, and he is being poured out on top of them as an offering, and that's blessing the Lord. And he's saying that's, what, that's how God intended it to, to be. And he says, because of that, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Verse 18, for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. The same reason, what's the same reason? That the fact that God's called him to sacrifice and be poured out for them on top of their, their sacrifice of service, of faith, that the fact that, that God's brought that into their lives, brought him into their lives, should be something that they rejoice over, and he's glad, and he wants to rejoice with them as well. Verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Isn't that sad to think about that? He couldn't find any leader that would be, it was such a scarce amount of leaders that were really in it for the right reasons. They were in it for themselves. You know, Paul talks about that multiple times in the New Testament, that these leaders were doing it for money and, you know, all these things. And, and he was the guy that was really the real deal in the sense of he wasn't fleecing them. He wasn't trying to get them, you know, to do anything so he would gain something. There was no selfish ambition going on. That's how all of our service should be. There should never be an ulterior motive for why we're serving people. We should be doing it because we love God and we love his people. So he wants to send Timothy to them, um, but it hasn't happened yet. And he talks about him in verse 22, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the, go in the gospel. So he has proven character. That's the one thing that is not the emphasis when we're out there looking for a pastor. It's usually what seminary did they go to? Can they, are they a charismatic speaker? Or, you know, all these things. And all those can have their great points or whatever to them. But the, when you look at the qualifications for an elder, an overseer in the New Testament, it's all about character, except one thing, which is they have to be able to teach. And, and so it's all about character. We've put this high premium on education, and it has its place. But in Scripture, it emphasizes the importance of character. And that's what Paul says here. You know, they know by experience. They know Timothy's character. They've experienced it. You know his proven character. And, and he talks about his father-son relationship that he has with them in the gospel. It's beautiful. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. Because Timothy coming to them was tied to his circumstances. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yes, I considered it necessary to send to you 
Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your, uh, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my needs. So they sent Epaphroditus to him. He ministered to Paul, and now Paul's sending him back and saying why. Um, verse 26, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So he was, Epaphroditus was distressed because he knew they heard that he was sick, but they didn't know what happened, if he was better or not, because news just didn't travel. He couldn't just send a text, you know, and say, oh, I'm better now, feeling better, thanks for your prayers, or send a message on Facebook, or whatever it is, obviously, you know, I'm, being jo I'm joking, but, you know, I mean, they, they just didn't get news. It took them weeks, sometimes months, to get a letter to them, and so he was disturbed and distressed that the people that loved him so much um, had heard that he was sick but hadn't heard anything else. Verse 27, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So the fact that God was gracious in healing him, Paul was so thankful he would have had sorrow upon sorrow if he would have died, and he's expressing his heart toward Epaphroditus. Verse 28, therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I, may, and I may be less sorrowful. So they're going to rejoice when they see him, but Paul's going to be less sorrowful because he knows that they're going to be reunited uh, again, and he's, he's going to be super you know, blessed that that happened. Verse 29, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking uh, in your service toward me. So he's saying, hold these men that sacrifice, that have proven character, that, that, that sacrifice for your benefit, hold them in high esteem. And sometimes people have to be reminded to hold people in high esteem. Right? Uh, that is true. Verse chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. There's his word joy again coming through. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you, it is safe. So Paul's saying, I'm going to be repetitious. It's not tedious for me. Don't worry about me getting tired of telling you multiple things. It's not tedious. And, and for you, it is safe. And that's what Paul knew. And that's a shepherd's heart when they know that it's best for God's people. They don't mind sacrificing and doing things over and over again because it's necessary. And it's for them, it translates into safety and growth and maturity. Verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. So beware of dogs. I told you right there, I'm not a dog fan. God's right there, beware. No, I'm just kidding. I, I don't mind dogs. Cats is a whole other story. But um, I don't mind certain dogs. Um, but this is not talking about animals. This is talking about evil workers. And, and Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs. That's just the common thing. That was just their, their, their designation. Those dogs, you know... Um, and he's talking about the Judaizers, the ones that came in, the false teachers that added to the gospel and saying, we're saying that you have to be circumcised as a Gentile and obey the law of Moses, even though you'd already received Christ. Paul wrote a whole book to the Galatians about this. Uh, but it was a common thing. And so when he's talking about mutilation, he's talking about the Judaizers' circumcision. The circumcision that they'd want to uh, enact or to you know, happen on the Gentiles that had already received Christ, that were, God never wanted them to be circumcised. He never, they weren't Jews. They weren't trying to be Jews. 
uh, he is saying that circumcision is mutilation. It, it's, it's, that's what it is. No matter what they say it, it is, no matter how they perform it, it's, it's like mutilating your body. So he's saying beware of that. Beware of false teachers. Beware of these evildoers. Beware of these people that are teaching you false doctrine, that are adding to the gospel, that are adding to God's word. Beware of them. And, and that's true for us. We need to be beware of false teachers. It's why we need to understand the word so well so we're not taken captive by every wind of doctrine. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. So in other words, I don't have any confidence in my flesh. Religious exercise. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Religious ceremonial exercise, I don't have any confidence in that, he's saying. He's saying that circumcision doesn't mean anything. What the true circumcision that means something is the circumcision of the heart, God changing the heart, and us worshiping not in rituals like circumcision and all those things, but us worshiping in the Spirit. That's what he says. Who worship God in the Spirit. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the Father is seeking those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. There's all kinds of different ways that we can worship the Lord, or at least try to, with human effort and trying to earn a right standing with God. He's saying that means nothing. That's not uh, valid. What's valid is that we worship God in the Spirit. He says, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh or human accomplishment or religious ritual, any of those things. Rejoice in Jesus Christ. Why, why are they two opposite things? Because Jesus Christ is full of, of, of grace and truth. And because of his sacrifice, we get to have our way to heaven paid for and receive as a free gift, which is great news. That's why we rejoice. Because the other thing is being on a treadmill of religious works, trying to earn a right standing with God. That's the treadmill that the Apostle Paul had been on his whole life before knowing Christ. And he's saying, so you can rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. And though he's going to kind of boast in a sanctified way to let them know that he has true credentials on that level if he, if he wanted to try to claim them, but he's, he's not going to claim them. In fact, he's going to consider them um, worthless for him. And he's going to get into that now. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of, of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So he says, all those things, I did all those things, I exceeded. Anyone that's telling you that they have credentials to tell you, you can add, you, that, you know, you add to the gospel by getting circumcised and obeying the law of Moses. I have more earthly credentials than them. But he says in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I like the, you know, rubbish. That's definitely a British um, translation. We don't usually use the word rubbish. You know, that's a bunch of rubbish. You know, we say garbage or whatever, but it literally could be dung. It literally could be excrement. Um, I count them as garbage that I may gain Christ. So he's weighing all those religious accomplishments, which are many. I mean, he was trained by Gamaliel, one of the premier Jewish rabbis in, the, in that time. He had been set apart for Jewish excellence his whole life and accomplished so much more than so many other people of his contemporaries. He's saying all of that 
by just by knowing Christ. And the word knowing there, the word knowledge there in verse 8, that's knowledge by experience. So he's saying, for the excellence of knowing by experience Christ Jesus my Lord. So he knows Jesus, just like we know him. He knows him, and he wouldn't trade any of those religious accomplishments for, for knowing Christ and knowing him more to be able to gain knowing him and, and having that relationship. It's beautiful. Maybe you come from a religious background where you felt like you had to earn and accomplish and all those things. All that means nothing to God. Our best performance on our best day is like filthy rags apart from Christ. And those filthy rags speak of uh, leprosy rags, menstrual rags, like all different kinds of rags in the Old Testament. When it says our righteousness are like filthy rags, it's, it's not our, even our sin. It's our best religious performance is like holding that up to the nostril of God and saying, that's my best performance, be pleased with that. That's God's perspective on our good works and our religious activity apart from Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him. Now the word in, next to him, that always speaks of our positional standing with God. We are in Christ Jesus. That's our legal standing. That's how he sees us. We are in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now, the law of Moses is the highest religious law there is. And if you can't be justified or acquitted of your sin through that law, any other law is inferior to it. So we're never going to come up with a human tradition law, religious law, that's going to somehow make us right with God if the law of Moses couldn't do it. And he's saying it couldn't. It's not superior to the righteousness that God imputes to us or deposits in us. Verse 10, that I may know him. So it's about relationship, not religious ritual. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. The last part of verse 10 is what we don't like to claim. <laughs> we don't like to talk about the sufferings of Christ. We don't like to talk about being conformed to, the, to his death. But that's part of the package deal. That's part of the deal for us, is that we have to recognize that, that God wants us to be conformed into the image of his death. We need to die to self daily, taking up our cross and following him. We need to die to self. We need to die to everything that is apart from Christ's plan for our lives. And, and, it, and we get to discover that every single day. Verse 11, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So he's, he's not saying I have to earn resurrection from the dead and hopefully there's a way that I may be able to do it. I'm not sure how to do it, but I'm going to really try. He's not saying that. He's saying he doesn't know how God's going to do it. He doesn't know how God's going to accomplish it. It's a mystery to him. So by any means that God chooses then, however he does it, I, you know, the goal for me is just to attain the resurrection from the dead, which is going to happen. It's a promise. Verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. That's a very powerful verse because he's saying, I want to lay hold of the very reward of knowing Christ, having a resurrected body, being with him for eternity. I want to have that because that's the reason why he got a hold of me in the first place is because he wants that for me more than I want it for myself. Isn't that beautiful? And he says here, but I press on. And that Greek word was always described people running. Or not always, but it, it mostly described people running or sprinting and exerting all their effort when they sprint. When you're sprinting, you're giving everything. 
He's saying that's what he does. Not to earn salvation, but to, but to press on and finish his race and to run his race well. To work out his salvation with fear and trembling. To take ownership of his walk and to press on and get, grow closer to the Lord. To grow in obedience. To grow in love. To grow in service to other people. That's what he was about. It was about expressing that with all of his um, energy every single day. It's a great example for us. Verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's a key to going forward is forgetting what's behind. One of the biggest challenges for us as believers is not allowing our failures and what people have done to us to hurt us and all those things to, what's hard for us is to, to, to turn our back on those things and not focus or fixate on them anymore and look completely forward and focus on what's ahead in the Lord. That's really difficult for us at times, but God can help us do it. There's nothing that positive that happens or good for us that happens by, by obsessing with the past. It doesn't help us. It may, we may think that it helps us, but it doesn't help us. We need to forget those things and move forward and go forward and, and press toward the goal for the prize. There's, there's a reward coming, and, and we have to focus on that. Verse 15, therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. So, Whatever we've, whatever, however we've grown, whatever level of maturity we're at, we need to be helping each other and being in unity with other people as we go forward, focusing and helping each other focus on achieving that goal going forward and reaching the end of our race and finishing well. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. So he was very emotional over it, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So he says, follow my example. So follow people, for we are called to follow people that are mature in Christ, and he's called others to follow us as we help them grow and help point the way of where they're supposed to go as well. And God uses that whole way of discipleship in a beautiful expression of, of just how he does all things well. Because he sets people up with people in their lives that are just at the right time, the right person for them. And we always forget sometimes that God wants to use that type of relationship with other people. That he wants, he, who are we discipling? Who are we reaching out to? Who are we encouraging in their faith? Who, who can, you know, follow us in helping them grow in, in the Lord? That's what God wants us to pray about and seek out. And if we're in that context to keep going and doing it faithfully. And then he talks about the end of the people that aren't walking right, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Talking about the religious rituals, the Judaizers, the rituals, all these things that are, that are not uh, of, of Scripture, in Scripture and so forth. For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So he will transform our body. That word transform is the word from which we get our word schematic. 
So he's going to transform our bodies according to his schematic, exactly how he wants it to be, what will bring us the greatest capacity to worship him, serve him, and to enjoy eternity. He's going to transform our lowly body in a moment in time at the rapture, um, uh, whether we've already passed away or not. <laughs> he's gonna ha- it's going to happen at that rapture where we're going to get our new bodies, and he's going to conform that, and he's able to do it because of his, his power that he has and how he can subdue all things and... and able to bring all things to himself. And it's just a beautiful testimony. We didn't even cover chapter 1 or chapter 4. Talk about a lot there, huh? It's a lot there. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for all the encouragement here in your word. We want to fulfill your great plan that you have for us by your grace and by your power, Lord. We ask that you would help us to finish our race well. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be of one mind towards each other. Help us to be sensitive and anticipate needs Lord, and to to care for not just our interests, but the interests of others. Lord, there's so much here that we could take from, that you could use by your Spirit. So we ask, Lord, that you would continuously bring these things to our hearts and to make us into the people you've called us to be. Help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing, Jesus, we're going to stand before you and give an account for our lives. Help us, Lord, to, to live the life you've called us to live in every way. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.